probably the most well-known verse in the Bible is what? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Probably the most quoted verse, at least in America, is what? Judge not that you be not judged. From Matthew 7.1, Jesus' words. When do people often quote that verse? When you judge them, or when you um, point out something they're doing is morally wrong, then that verse comes out. They may not know any other verse in the Bible, but they got that one down. Was Jesus prohibiting any and all moral judgments when he said those words? In context, what he was saying is, uh, we're not to condemn And he was saying in particular, don't judge others when you have your own wrongs that you can be judged for. Deal with your own wrongs first, and then you can help others to see where their wrongs are. So that's what he was saying. In other words, there clearly are situations where we must judge others, so to speak. And In other words, when uh, there are times when it's wrong not to confront the wrongs of others and address the wrongs. The New Testament writers call upon us to reprove and correct teaching that is not grounded in the Scriptures in general and in the Gospel in particular, and we are to correct fellow believers when they are sinning. It says that in Galatians 6.1, If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, you who are walking with Jesus, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we're not to condemn others. We're not to judge others when we're not willing to deal with our own sins, our own wrongs, but there are times when we should lovingly confront others' wrong beliefs and behaviors to restore them. In today's Bible text, as we continue walking through Romans, Paul addresses a situation in which two groups, two parties in the church, church at Rome, were judging each other, or at least were, were being tempted to. The problem was they were judging one another over matters that were not about beliefs or behaviors required or prohibited in scriptures. And the issues were not essential to the truth of the gospel of salvation by faith alone and in the death and resurrection of Christ alone. Properly relating to fellow believers who have different convictions over matters that are not essential to the gospel is a way of fulfilling the law of love. We talked about that last week from John, or from Romans chapter 13. We love our neighbors as ourselves. This is one way that we love others as ourselves is by not judging them um, about matters of indifference, matters that aren't uh, required in Scripture. So let's look at uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Romans 14, 1 to 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. These are the words of, of the living God. So what Paul says in verse 1, he talks about the one who is weak in faith. Talking about how you deal with one who is weak in faith. So the, the person who is weak in faith is not like got a, a little bit of faith. The person who is weak in faith doesn't have the full understanding of, of all that he has in the gospel. So he's, he's weak in faith in that sense. And we'll see, see that as we walk through this. But Paul says we are to welcome, we are to accept or receive the one who is weak in faith. To properly welcome him, to properly accept him, you must not quarrel with him about his opinions. Don't welcome him. Say, hey, welcome to our church. Now I'm going to criticize you. It's not the, good, the best way to do it. Don't welcome him only to criticize him about his views on, on matters that are not essential to the faith about which he has convictions. Paul gives his example, the first example in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So there were um, disputes about food, arguments about diet, like like I think the paleo, paleo diet is best, you think the Mediterranean diet is best, or you think the seafood diet is best. You know what that is, right? Most of us are on that one. You see food, you eat it. Is Paul saying that vegetarians or vegans are weak in faith? And he's telling me I can't criticize them? Oh, Paul, come on. If you say so. In the context of the Roman church in Paul's day, those who ate only vegetables were Jewish Christians who still held to the Old Testament food laws. Those laws prohibited eating certain foods as being unclean, not like bacteria-wise, not like dirty dining in a restaurant, but uh, ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean. Not all meats were prohibited, but some were, like pork, shellfish, ravens, vultures, lions, camels, geckos, monitor lizards, chameleons, and mice. So for your... um, Super Bowl party today, if you're trying to hold to the Old Testament food laws, get rid of the mice. Some of the Jewish Christians in the Roman church were so concerned that there was no guarantee the meat would be prepared in a kosher way, that is a clean way. Um, They ate vegetables only. So they, they didn't have to only eat vegetables, even by the Old Testament laws, but they were so concerned that there might be pork cross contamination that they decided uh, we're only going to eat vegetables. There were 
Those also who believe they could eat anything in the church, we, we like to be on that side of things, uh, they, they were the Gentiles and Jews like Paul who knew that the Old Testament food laws no longer had any bearing on pleasing God. They believed that since Jesus had declared all foods clean and had rendered obsolete all the ceremonial aspects of the law, that what you ate or didn't eat had no impact on your holiness to the Lord. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. So those who were weak in faith had not yet grasped the fullness of the freedom they had in Christ. They just, In their conscience, they just couldn't buy into the fact that they were free to eat any food and be pleasing to God. It wasn't that they thought you couldn't be saved if, if you ate meat. If they thought that, then Paul would have not said tolerate this view. He would have, he would have corrected that. But from where they were coming from, it was, it was just a matter of indifference. You're free to not eat, veg, uh, not eat meat and eat vegetables only. That's fine if you have that conviction. Um, but as long as you don't insist that others are compromising if they don't hold to your view. Now, they might have pointed to Daniel's example in Babylon, where Daniel and his three friends were in Babylon, and, and they chose to eat vegetables and water only, and, and God favored them because they were making a, a, a very clear uh, conviction, and just he honored their conviction. But it wasn't because everybody who eats vegetables only is more holy, except you vegetarians may think that that's the case, and that's good if you feel that way, but can't make us do it. Paul's concern that that a matter of indifference like this, eating versus non-eating various foods, doesn't become divisive in which Christians judge and criticize each other. Now, are there actually um, are there actually divisive food issues like this in in Christian circles today? Well, you may not think so much, but I have I have been exposed to some people in the past who had some diets that they that they virtually treated like it was the godly way to go. They, they said this is the, the more biblical form of, of, of eating. This is the, more, the biblical diet. And, and so like if you're really trying to honor the Lord, you eat this way. So there actually are some people who have that, that conviction. It's fine to, to have a, a dietary conviction, but you just don't put it on others and say that you're, you're more, more holy by eating this way. It may, not, may or may not make you physically more healthy, but it will not make you more spiritual or holy. Still others seem to think their practice of fasting makes them more holy. Now, fasting can be a very effective discipline for spiritual focus and for being weak and dependent before the Lord and being earnest before the Lord. It's, it's good to do that. But it, it, it's not something that you earn favor with God by practicing, and it's not something that um, inherently makes you more holy. So according to verse 3, there is no place for judging others regarding what they do or don't eat. Paul says that in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Those who knew they were free to eat any food without compromising their relationship with God could fall into despising those who thought they were better spiritually by not eating meat. They think it is so clear in Scripture that that food is not an issue about uh, pleasing God 
that they they despise the non-eaters. They probably make fun of them, have scorned them, make jokes about them. Paul says, don't do that. On the other hand, those who abstained from, from meat were not to judge or condemn those who did eat meat. The reason they were not to judge them as compromising was because God had welcomed them. God had accepted them. God had received them. And how can they condemn those whom God has accepted? And then he says in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who do you think you are to judge God's servant? He stands or falls in faith before his own master, his own Lord. You think that unless he holds to your standard, he may fall away. But God will uphold him in faith, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, in verse 5, he begins talking about days, certain days. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What day or days is Paul talking about? Well, the Jews observe many festival or holy days, as well as new moons and Sabbath days. In particular, the Sabbath set the Jews apart from other, other, other peoples. And so they would be zeroed in on the Sabbath in particular. So what Paul is saying is that while some in the church regarded one day, particularly the Sabbath, as better than another, others regarded all days alike. Now, in the history of the church, the Sabbath issue has produced more controversy than, than food disagreements. It's still an issue of often strong disagreement today amongst some circles. I can't take the time in this message to go into all the detail over the various viewpoints, but in short summary, and some of you may disagree with how I present this, but, but then it's a good opportunity to practice this passage. The fourth commandment given to Israel was, remember the Sabbath. Sabbath simply is a word that means seven. It's, it's seventh in Hebrew. Remember the Sabbath, it's Saturday, to keep it holy. And he, God said, don't do any work on that day to keep it holy. And several other texts, God says, the Sabbath is a sign between myself and Israel that they're my holy people, that I'm keeping them set apart for myself. So the issue since Christ has come is keeping the Sabbath still required of God's people under the new covenant. Do we still need to obey that law just as we still should not have any other gods before God? So we should not murder, should not steal, so we should honor our father and mother, uh, not commit adultery. Is it still required in that same way? Well, according to Paul, what Paul says in this passage, it is valid to esteem all days alike. So one valid option is you you esteem all days alike. You regard all days alike. It means there is no day that is fully equivalent to the Sabbath, where we must not do any work in order to keep the day holy to the Lord. Why not? What's changed? Well, in Colossians two sixteen to seventeen, we we get a uh, Paul's insight on that. I think we might have that up on the screen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the reason keeping the Sabbath is no longer a command God requires Christians to obey is that it was a shadow of the things to come. It was fulfilled in Christ. He is the substance of what the Sabbath pictured. He is our Sabbath rest, though we won't experience that fully until the new heavens and new earth. But Christ is our Sabbath rest. And in Christ we have rested from trusting in our own works to save us. We are saved by trusting in his finished work on the cross and by his resurrection. Christ sets us apart as holy to God, not by eating certain foods or not eating certain foods, and observing special days or by other rituals. That is why Paul says no one can legitimately judge you concerning not keeping the Sabbath any more than they can justifiably judge you for not keeping the Old Testament food laws or festival days. So we can't judge for not keeping the Sabbath just as he can't judge you for not eating shellfish or eating shellfish. But some of you may ask, well, isn't Sunday the, the, the replacement for the Sabbath? Well, this is a matter of debate among different Christian circles. But in short, the answer is no. The early church just started meeting for worship, teaching of the word and fellowship on the first day of the week because that was the day Christ rose from the dead. There's, but there's nothing in the New Testament that says the Sunday is now the Christian Sabbath. So does it matter whether we meet on Sunday for worship and fellowship? Well, it does matter that we meet for worship and fellowship and, and the Word. It is a good practice rooted in the historical observance of, of the church for centuries that we meet on, on the day of Christ's resurrection, the Lord's Day. It's and, and the only place that the Lord's Day as a term shows up is in uh, Revelation 1.10, where it says John was on the island of Patmos receiving the revelation from God, and he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So what does Paul say is the decisive factor? Uh, and, and also, God did establish a seven-day week, and one day of, of rest and, and break into normal routine is good, just practically speaking, and it's good to have a day to set aside. For, um, for rest and, and worship and fellowship, so it's good. But what does Paul say is the decisive factor in whether you observe the Sabbath or not, or any other holy days, or for our times, how you observe the Lord's Day? What's the decisive factor? He says each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what he says in verse 5. He or she should be completely certain that he is honoring the Lord in his choices and practices. What Paul says later in this chapter, and later in chapter 14 of Romans, in verses 22 and 23, concerning matters that are not explicitly required in Scripture for us to believe or obey, applies here. And what he says in, in verses 22 and 23 is, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, so he's back on food again, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever is does not proceed from faith is sin. So um, it's a matter of conscience. I've heard people 
say they're disobeying something that is clearly required in the scripture. Um, God, when confronted about sinning in that way, they say God hasn't convic- convicted me of that yet. So they're committing sexual immorality and say, hey, that's you need to cut that out. It's not pleasing to God. It's wrong. They say God hasn't convicted me of that yet. That's not what we're talking about. What, what, what you're saying there in, in so many words is, I'm self-deceived and I'm, I've got a, a seared conscience when you talk that way. In terms of things that are explicitly required to obey and believe in Scripture. But in matters of, of indifference, matters that you're free to have different convictions on, you still need to have a conviction. What the Scripture doesn't require us to believe or obey, Paul says we, we should still be fully convinced in our own minds that we've made the right choice, a good choice. That is, we must be certain that in doing it or not doing it, we are glorifying God. So in, in matters of not essential to the gospel, that we are, are not what the Scriptures require us to believe or obey, you should be fully convinced that what you decide honors God. And we see this in verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Paul says what matters for a Christian who observes the Sabbath or any other holy day is that he observes it for the Lord, to honor and glorify the Lord. He says it in terms of food. Uh, what matters for the Christian who believes he's free to eat every kind of food is that he eats for the, he eats for the Lord. He does it in giving thanks to God, honoring him by giving thanks. And the one who does not eat meat or other foods abstains for the Lord, honoring him by giving thanks for the, what he does eat. So that's what he says makes the difference. If they thought they were earning favor with God or were saying that others were com- compromising by not observing the day, Paul would, would be rebuking them, as he did in Galatians, where they, they did think it was a matter of earning favor with God. And he said, you observe days and months and, and seasons and years I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. I'm afraid I've wasted my time with you because you still don't get the gospel and you're still thinking that you earn favor with God by, by observing days and, and seasons. In the choices you make as to what you say yes to and what you say no to, can you say your purpose is to honor God? Are you truly able to give thanks to him in everything you do? As he says in verses 7 and 8, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. The reason that the weak in faith and the strong in faith should not judge each other is because we don't live to ourselves or we don't die to ourselves. Our lives are entirely dependent upon the Lord. Everything we are or have comes from him. The time and circumstances of our death is in the hands of the Lord. Our lives are not our own. We completely belong in life and death to the Lord. Therefore, we must not presume it is our place to judge what is right for other Christians to do in matters that we are free to have different convictions about. God knows our heart and our fellow Christian's heart. He alone is able to judge our motives. And in verse um, 8 or 9, He says, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. For this is the reason Christ died and came to life again, that he might be Lord of everyone, dead or alive. Everyone who died in union with Christ is already yielded fully to his lordship. So if you're dead and you died in Christ, you're you're there. You're 
obeying him as Lord. Everyone who alive owes him faith and obedience. He has borne God's judgment against our sin and his death. He has given us new hearts that are inclined to his lordship. We don't perfectly conform to it yet, but we live under his lordship. Paul once again reminds both groups that the member of the other group, in spite of his different convictions and different practice, is in the fullest sense a fellow believer, one who belongs to the same Lord. Then he says in verse 10 and 11, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He's just really calling us to not pass judgment on one another. Or you, why do you despise your brother? Because Christians with different convictions are brothers under the same Lord. Why do you who are weak in faith judge your brother? And why do you who are strong in faith despise your brother? You're not the boss of him. He's not the boss of you. For we all, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And Paul quotes the words of Isaiah 45, 23. Every one of us will bow before him and will humbly confess God's justice and supremacy over all. We're going to confess God's right to to judge and not our, our right to judge. And then he says in verse 12, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So you're getting ready for that? Give an account of yourself to God? So your concern should not be that other believers must share your convictions about secondary matters. Hold your conviction, but don't act as if your Lord and your being right about the issues is what is supreme. Don't act as if your right to be right is what is supreme. Rather, be concerned that when you stand before the Lord, you will give an account of yourself to God. He will not be asking you, how many people did you convince that your opinions about non-essential matters are right? Hey, did you get more people on your side? Hey, way to go. It's not, not, not what you're going to hear from the Lord. What are the issues that you find yourself judging or criticizing other Christians for? What do you most find yourself criticizing other Christians for? What matters do you tend to look down on other believers if they don't share your same convictions or passions about? Over the years, I've seen people get more bent and have more conflict over these secondary matters that are not explicitly addressed in Scripture than they do over matters that are clearly addressed in Scripture. For... um, Besides some current day debates about Sabbath and even some food debates, many fights and judgmental criticisms are over ways and methods of doing things that God does call us to do. So God tells us to do ministry, to serve one another, and how we go about doing that, we can debate about that. For example, we sing hymns and songs of praise to the Lord, but there have been worship wars in the past. Some of those still continue on today. Over music styles and lyric types. Of course, your preference is best, right? Yeah, you're right on. Another issue has been schooling choices for our children. Those who are making the best and right and God-honoring education choice for their kids send them to a private Christian school, right? 
No, they send them to public school where they can be salt and light. Actually, those who homeschool are, are taking responsibility for their kids' education, so they're right. We know the Bible teaches that Jesus is, Jesus is returning. Jesus is coming back. So which one of you has the right understanding of, of the end-time scenarios? What Paul says is we are not to judge one another on beliefs and behaviors not explicitly required in Scripture or that are not totally clear from Scripture. He doesn't say that these are not important issues to consider. He doesn't say just go with the lowest common denominator. Don't just adopt the, the what's wrong with this ethic. I don't see anything wrong with this, so I'm just going to do it. He wants us to be thoughtful about convictions we have over matters that aren't necessarily specifically addressed in Scripture. We should be fully convinced that the view or practice that we adopt honors and glorifies the Lord. Like Paul says elsewhere, whether we eat or drink, in all we do, we do for the glory of God. And the, the one uh, certain thing that he tells us to do in this text is to love others who differ with us. To love others who differ with us. So with that in mind, let's ask for God's help. Father, we thank you that in your word, the Bible, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. You made it very clear to us that Christ is your son. He is God and man. He lived the perfect life. He died the death we should have died and was raised again so that we could have life through him. Faith alone in him is how we receive everlasting life, and we are to be about making disciples for him from all nations. You've given us clear instruction, Father, about the gospel and about what we're to be about doing as your servants. You've also given us freedom to make to have different convictions about different issues. Help us, Father, to be... In the best sense of the word, it's a word that's been abused and stretched all out of shape in our culture, but tolerant of one another. And true tolerance means I recognize you have your convictions and I have my convictions and we're going to love and serve one another truly. So help us, Father, to to be diverse in the best sense of that word in things that we can be different about, but utterly united in the essentials of the gospel and that your word clearly teaches. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you, convinced of your truth, and loving toward one another, serving one another, bearing with one another, being patient with one another. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.